Thank you, Dan, and choir and instrumentalists for wonderful worship today. We continue in our Lucan sermon series. If you've missed one, I'd invite you to go to firstamarillo.org. You can watch it, listen to it, or print it off and catch up with our Lucan sermon series. Choices and consequences today from Luke 16, 19 through 31. Before we begin with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, we need to understand the verses that precede this parable. If you look back at chapter 16 and verse 13, just a few verses above, we read these words. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. Initially, we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, the scribes and the Pharisees were bothered by grumbling at Jesus' association with sinners. Why does he hang around folks like that? Why would he let her touch his feet? Doesn't he know about those people? And now they shift their evil eye. They shift their sights to his radical view about the use of resources. So far in Luke's gospel, we've heard these things from Jesus. In Luke chapter 3, he says, make charitable gifts to the poor. In Luke chapter 14, he says, invite the down and outs to your up and in parties. That's Luke 14. And now he's saying in chapter 16, we need to notice the poor who are at our own front door. Now, to be clear this morning, Jesus is not condemning greed as one sin to be found amongst many sins. No, what he's saying here is greed is tantamount to idolatry. It is gathering for the self, sacrificing for the self, hoarding for the self. It is substituting self for God. Greed is idolatry. The truth comes out when the Pharisees do not only not heed Jesus' warning about mammon, but they mock his warning as well. Much of the health, wealth, and prosperity preaching you hear in the popular gospel today comes exactly from the kind of bad theology that's found in this story. Verse 15, above, Jesus makes clear that the Pharisees' own positive evaluation of their piety is not to be equated with God's righteous judgment against their greed. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. While the Pharisees seem high and holy to the Jewish crowds, God looks at their inner hearts. Finally, in verse 17, we need to know that Jesus is telling them even their own law, the writings of Moses and the prophets, 
speak against greed. Look at verse 17. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. He's saying to them, even before I arrived as Messiah, if you'd listen to Moses, if you'd listen to the prophets, they tell you that indeed caring for the poor ought to be a priority. In fact, Jesus says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke on one letter of the law to fail. Now that Messiah is here, we have to reread Moses and reread the prophets in light of the Messiah event, but rereading them with new eyes, with the arrival of the kingdom, does not negate their obligation upon us. So Jesus is telling the Pharisees, not even what I say, but what you've already heard Moses say about the care of the poor. Well, for our first verse, 19, I entitle a certain rich man. We arrive at the parable itself and we're reminded of two principles. Number one, the king, kingdom of God is open to everyone. In fact, especially to the poor like Lazarus. And number two, that the law about how we treat the underprivileged is still intact from Moses and the prophets. Greed is clear evidence that the kingdom has not yet invaded our lives. Greed is clear evidence that the kingdom and kingdom priorities have not yet invaded our lives. There's a certain rich man. Now, as a reader of Luke's gospel, all of a sudden you know where we're going, don't you? When we say a certain man, you know Jesus is about to tell, tell a parable. We'll look back at 1511. How did it start? The, the parable of the prodigal son? A certain man had two sons. When Jesus says a certain man, he's about to tell you a story. If you're not convinced by 1511, look at 16.1. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a certain rich man. So now when we get to verse 19, and he uses the same opening phrase he's just used before with the previous parable, you know, a certain rich man means Jesus is about to tell us a story. Verse 19 embodies that ancient and contemporary theology, which concludes that one's level of wealth is a measure of one's blessing from God. It was bad theology back then for the rich man. It's bad theology now. One's level of wealth is not a measure of one's blessing from God. Heaven, therefore, shines upon those they argued and frowns upon those with little. In uncharacteristic fashion, Jesus describes the actual clothing of the gentleman He's dressed in purple, the kingly color. And even his underwear is fine. Look at that. And fine linen. That's a what nice way of saying even the man's underwear was made out of the very best cloth available. In antiquity, you wouldn't have meat very often. It was soup. It was fruit. It was bread. But not so for this man. 
He lived in splendor every day, was a feast, every day was a banquet. And accustomed to the common fare, the rich man made a feast out of every meal. In Margaret Atwood's alias Grace, the main character Grace makes this comment about the rich. For if the world treats you well, you come to believe you're deserving of it. If the world treats you well, you come to believe that you are deserving of it. And so the rich man thought that he was the cause of his own wealth, not God. He didn't give back. He hoarded for himself. Well, verse 20, a, a certain poor man. We learn a certain poor man named Lazarus. Now, what I want you to notice, and, and most of your friends won't know this, this is the only character in all of Jesus' parables with a name. Tell me the rich man's name. You can't. Tell me the prodigal son's name before. You can't. Tell me the steward's name. You can't. Somehow, in the nameless nature of the rich man, he loses his persona, and yet by naming the poor man, Jesus personalizes him. We know his name, therefore we know him. His name is Lazarus. In fact, his name means God will help me in Hebrew. Therefore, knowing his name and what it means, we're looking for God to help the poor man. Lazarus finds himself in the beggar's posture each day. He was laid at the gate. He was covered with sores. This word for gate is the word pylon. It's used of a, a huge, ornate gate that would mark off a temple or a grand residence. It was an entrance. It was a statement. Well, in West Texas, it would be which ranch has the best entry. You get it. You've seen them. One outdoing the next neighbor down the road. It was a ranch with a really nice entrance, you might say. It was gated. The gate served two purposes. It advertised the man's wealth in comparison to his neighbors who didn't have gates like that. And it kept the unwelcome guests, like the poor, from partaking in the man's luxury and leisure. Before we throw too many stones at the rich man, we need to be reminded that gated communities are popping up all over our country and all over Turkey and Poland and England and China and West Africa and Canada and Australia. They're privatopias. They're forming the fortress America of the future. Now, we might put up those gates, we would say, for security, for protection, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that the proliferation of gated communities can end up dividing the social fabric into centers and peripheries where income disparities and inequality and social stratification will be clearly demarcated by the walls and the gaze between the haves and the have-nots of our culture. We are the guy with the big gate. The scraps. 1621. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. 
Now, this is a second parable when we've had a character get so low and hungry that the next step is death. Remember, the prodigal son wanted to eat the pig pods and said, I'm I'm starving. This is our second starving character in the parables of Luke. He's at a state of hunger, and the next stage is death. The poor man Lazarus knows his place in the pecking order. He has no hopes of being invited to the rich man's banquet. All he asks for is the leftovers. What's going to the trash can? The crumbs are going to hit the floor. That's all he needs. We went on a mission trip to Uganda years ago, and I was teaching at the seminary, and we had a construction crew building housing on the seminary and a librarian organizing the theological library. And one of the side trips we took was a whitewater rafting trip on the Nile. Now, Uganda is the birthplace of the Nile. It's where it starts, and so you can imagine the ferocity of the waters there. We got in a little boat, and we literally would see 15 feet tall walls of waves, and it wasn't if you were going out of the boat, it was how many times and could you find the boat and could you get back in the boat before the crocodiles got you. You were going out of the boat. I remember how humbling that was that, well, I, I, we made it through the first one and in a little arrogance I said, well, we're, we're not going to go out of our boat. And I, I think the guide heard the pride and therefore he guided the boat at every headwater and we went out of the boat every other time but the first time. But they advertised at the end you would have a steak dinner in the middle of the jungle of Uganda. Well, we got there and it was a, you know, baked, it was a, a potato chips and it was a medium grade steak and a, a can of cola. But after all day on the Nile and, and more water inside of me than outside the Nile, it was, it was a good thing. And we ate that steak dinner and of course it tasted great. And when it was over, I, I noticed the Ugandan children gathering in the bush, and I thought they were just, you know, intrigued or curious about the Westerners who had come. And then we loaded on the back of the trucks to be driven on the very bumpy dirt road out of the middle of the jungle. The minute we got in the trucks, the children rushed the tables and devoured every scrap of fat and leftover meat, broken bits of potato chips, wolfing down, even guzzling down leftover cola in the cans. And I remember the overwhelming feeling of guilt. If I'd known that's what they were waiting for, I would have left the whole steak and the whole bag of chips. Like those Ugandan children hiding in the bush and waiting on the Westerners to leave the crumbs, Lazarus said, I just want you to give me the table scraps like a dog. Now, the dogs here in the story that lick his sores don't think about the dog that sleeps in the bed with you or the the foot of the bed. These were packs of wild, unclean animals that sometimes devoured the bodies of the dead. They were just waiting, the pack of dogs on Lazarus to die so they could taste his wounds and expectation. Verse 22, we entitle the bosom of Abraham. Look at verse 22. And now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man died and was 
buried. Do you notice something strange about the report? First of all, we, we, we reversed our order. We first met the rich man first, dressed in purple and the really nice underwear, and now we've switched it, and Lazarus dies first, and the rich man dies second. Do you see that? But, but if you read the text carefully, you'll notice that the rich man has a what? A lavish burial. What does it say about the poor man's burial? Nothing. He didn't even get a burial. It's too poor. Perhaps he could hope for a, a pauper's service, but even that's unlikely. Lazarus doesn't even get the mention of a burial. And he finds himself in heaven described by the idiom of Abraham's bosom. And then we're reminded back to the Sermon on the Plain in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus proclaims as the first beatitude, Blessed are you who are poor, for to you belongs the kingdom of heaven. He said that earlier, and now it's lived out in the story of the parable. In 23 and 24, we have the agony of the flame. And in Hades... He lifted up his eyes, the rich man, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. The agony of the flame. In this particular parable, we find the usual description of Hades as a place of torment, a place of thirst, a place of fire and flames, as divided by a great chasm between the kingdom of God and the place of punishment one can't come to and fro. This is part of the New Testament idea of the great reversal. If you're not familiar with that, of all the major New Testament themes, one of those major themes is the last shall be first and the first shall be last. It's upside down cake. It's, there's going to be a great reversal and the haves become the have-nots and the have-nots become the haves and everything is turned upside down and those who are thought lowly are now judged by the heart and not by the exterior, the face, the wealth, the riches. And in heaven, everything is upside down compared to the measures of the world in which we live. While on earth, the rich man lived behind the big pylons, the big gates. And, and Lazarus was outside the gate. And following the great reversal, Lazarus finds himself at paradise's banquet, reclining even at the bosom of the great patriarch Abraham, while the rich man is cut off from the portal of paradise by the great chasm, the big divide. The beggar now belongs at the banquet. No more crumbs for him and the kingdom for eternity. And the rich man is relegated to the place of poverty and punishment. The story comes as, as no surprise to those who know their Psalter and the proverbial sayings that God will not ignore the afflictions of the afflicted, Psalm 22. 
that he will always hear the cries of the poor, Proverbs 21. And interestingly enough, are you shocked by the fact that the rich man still thinks he can order Abraham and Lazarus around? Hey, 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 send down the finger with the water. In this life, everybody jumped to his command. And in that life, he still thinks he can tell Abraham and Lazarus what to do. How many times did Lazarus cry out only to be ignored on the other side of the gate? 25 and 26, it's not a comfortable passage, but it's the great chasm. And Abraham said, child, now interestingly enough, the patriarch himself now engages with conversation with the man who used to wear purple. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted and you are in agony. And besides all this between us, there's a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and, and none may cross from over there to us. As a patriarch participates in the dialogue, making the rich man take note of the biblical theme of the great reversal. You had the good things, he had the bad. Now he has the good things, and you have the bad. One thing that ought to scare us all is that there is no negotiating concerning one's assignment. We live this life thinking that even after death that somehow we'll be able to negotiate a better position or place for ourselves. But the reality is at the moment of death, it is over, judged, fixed, and done with. There is a great chasm between those in the kingdom of God and those in the place of punishment that those over there can cannot come up here, Abraham says. If the word of Abraham is not enough to shake us in our boots, then what would? Those who live life outside the grace of God. Those who make mockery of the invitation that Jesus has to come me and I will give you rest to somehow think at the end of the story we'll renegotiate our position or our place not so says Abraham between there and here is a great chasm and it is fixed and it cannot be changed the time for that gentleman to get his act in order and his relationship with God set rightly was while he was living. And not knowing whether you or I would live to our next breath, that means the moment is now. Not tomorrow. Not after we die. In fact, the word for the chasm is the word mega. That's the Greek word. I don't even need to translate the word mega for, for you, do I? It is a mega chasm. It is a great chasm. It cannot be changed. Today is a day of salvation. Now is a day of repentance and reception of the story of Jesus and the grace of God. Five brothers, verse 27 and 28. 
And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my, my father's house, where I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. Now, you might think for at least the rich man is thinking about someone other than himself, but in thinking about his own household, he's thinking about an extension of himself. I didn't get it. I didn't realize that on the other side there was a great chasm and it was fixed. My eyes were, were closed. I thought my riches were a blessing from God. I thought it was an affirmation of my lifestyle. I thought it was an amen to my greed. Would you please, please send someone to tell my brothers? The warning might go something like this. Living in self-centered height of luxury when you're at the land of the living will ensure abject poverty on the other side. 29, 31, the law and the prophets. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded as someone rises from the dead. They have not listened to Moses. They have not listened to the prophet Isaiah. What makes you think if I send someone who's raised from the dead to speak to them that they will be able to hear the message? Jesus, of course, is alluding to Easter, isn't he? Did the resurrection, does rising from the dead change the power of the message? Herod thought that John the Baptist or one of the prophets had raised from the dead. It didn't make Herod repent. He simply became curious. And there's another man in, in the New Testament named Lazarus, just incidentally, and he is raised from the dead by Jesus. Does that cause a lot of people to repent and follow Jesus? No. In the Gospel of John, it is that which causes them to want to kill Jesus because the dead are raised. And finally, when Jesus himself, the teller of the story, is raised and the guards give testimony to the Jewish authorities, they're not in remorse, but rather they lie and bribe. To say there is no resurrection of the dead. What Jesus is saying is this. If you won't listen to Moses about repentance, if you won't listen to the word of Isaiah, then you won't listen to me when I rise from the dead. You cannot read the ending of that story without picking up on the fact that Luke is alluding to the resurrection of the storyteller in two weeks, Jesus himself. Where are we in this story? I know it's, if I ask today, whose favorite Bible story is the rich man and Lazarus, there wouldn't be a hand go up, not one, not, not mine either. I don't like the story any more than you do. I don't get to vote on it. I just got to preach it. You understand? It's the story that's here. We cannot brush off the idolatry of greed. We have to learn the word enough and not more. We must be generous to the church and the ministries 
and the missions in our midst. And yet we know that Jesus attracted both the poor and the rich, and some of the rich were the very best followers of our Lord. They empowered his ministry and message. And yet we also know that Jesus himself, who had rich followers, who supported his message and ministry, said to them, why, it'll be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to ever get his priorities right, because they always think his riches are my blessing. We must be careful how we use our mammon, our money, and we must be careful how we treat the poor. And then to those of you in this room or by television who put off decision about the gospel, if you won't listen to Moses, if you won't listen to Isaiah, will you listen during this season to the resurrected Jesus? Let us pray. God, this is a hard word. For me and everybody in this room. And there's some here that haven't listened to Moses and they haven't listened to Isaiah and they haven't listened to Matthew, Mark, or Luke and they haven't listened to Jesus. And may they hear that the chasm is fixed on the other side, that today is a day to get priorities in order to repent and receive the grace of God. For His grace is enough for our salvation. God, I, I pray that we are tithers and givers and that we acknowledge through our, our, our tithe that you are the giver of all the good things in our lives and we are owners of nothing. We are just stewards of everything. And Father, I, I pray there'd be someone who would say, this story is enough. I will listen to Abraham today. I will not find myself fixed on the other side of the chasm. I will heed the warning now. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning, perhaps it is your day to accept Jesus Christ as your, your Lord and Savior. To say, you will heed the word of the preaching of the gospel today. You will not exit this place, this sacred space without having that decision to know that you're a forgiven child of God, that Jesus Christ has died for you on the cross, that your sins are forgiven and your life and your priorities are in order, that today for you would be the day of salvation. The devil once again says tomorrow, but God says today. Maybe you're here and you'd like to be a part of this church that will dare preach the whole word of God, and we will. 589, stand together as we sing.